if you will, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, we'll look at verses 18 to 22 today, a fairly brief text. You know, every endeavor that runs on volunteers has very predictable problems. Because people volunteer for a lot of different reasons. Everyone has something that he or she hopes to gain for his efforts. And each volunteer comes with his own conditions, what he's willing to do, when he's willing to do it. All of which present a complex set of problems for those who lead organizations staffed by lots of volunteers. In our text this morning, we learned that Jesus had the same issues to deal with. But he was not at the mercy of those who followed him. He spoke to them very candidly. And in the process, he taught us about being his disciples. Let me read our text. Matthew 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is God's word to us this morning. There are two incidents in this account, two volunteers with whom Jesus interacted and two resulting lessons for us. The first is this. We must share Christ's suffering before we share his glory. We must share Christ's suffering before we share his glory. The first volunteer Jesus encountered was a man enthusiastic to join Jesus' mission. And if we look back at the immediate context of what we've studied in the last few weeks, we can understand why. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't speak like other teachers. He spoke with authority. And immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, he began to exercise his authority. He healed a hopeless leper. He healed a centurion's servant from a distance, but the word. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, which led to a whole evening of people bringing all kinds of sick and demon-possessed people for Jesus to heal. So this volunteer, seeing Jesus' power and his authority, wanted to be part of it. You're just like us. When we see early signs of great success, we want in. We want to share the glory and the wealth and the prestige and the honor. And so this teacher of the law came to Jesus pledging his allegiance. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus didn't seem to be impressed. For he knew that this volunteer did not understand what he was signing up for. So Jesus began to explain that his followers must first share his suffering before they share his glory. Specifically, Jesus told him about his accommodations. You know, you can endure a lot of hard work and terrible conditions as long as you have a clean bed and a hot shower to go home to. But Jesus said his followers can't be sure of that. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was not saying he never had a place to sleep. He had lots of friends who ministered to him and provided things for his use. Jesus was addressing the man's expectations of sharing in his glorious kingdom 
without counting the cost, which often included doing without things that others considered essential. Jesus' disciples were to learn this in no uncertain terms. The Apostle Paul later described his own experience in following Christ. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. But the point of Jesus' statement was not just the reality of the hardship of his service. The point was the contrast between his glory and his suffering. Jesus knew his glory was coming, but he also knew that he first must suffer abject humility and pain. Let me explain. In his answer to Jesus, to this man, Jesus calls himself the son of man. First time that term is used in the big gospel of Matthew. Now we hear that title, Jesus saying he's the son of man, and we think, isn't Jesus a sweet, humble man? That's because we don't know the Old Testament very well. This title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel's prophecy. Daniel chapter 7 is where we find it. Daniel, in that prophecy, saw a vision of the eternal God in all of his heavenly glory. He called him the Ancient of Days. But as Daniel watched, he saw one like the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven into the presence of God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, and and, and listen to what happened when this One like the Son of Man entered God's presence. We read in Daniel 7, This Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In his book, Coming of the Kingdom, Herman Ritterboss wrote, The Son of Man here is is not simply an ordinary man invested with temporal and earthly dominion. He is the man who has been given unlimited divine authority and to whom God's God's universal royal dominion has been entrusted. Indeed, while we may think that the Son of Man is a cute, nice, little, humble title for Jesus, the teacher of the law, the other leaders of Israel certainly came to understand that's what the Son of Man meant in terms of what Daniel said. For later when Jesus was on trial before the Jewish council, he was asked under oath, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Tell us. To which Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when they heard that answer, they said, he's spoken blasphemy. He's worthy of death. There's no question that in his answer to this teacher of the law, Jesus was claiming divine glory for himself. But at the same time, he was making the point that this son of man, the one who will come on clouds of glory, 
The one who will ascend to the ancient of days. The one who will rule God's royal kingdom. This son of man has no place to lay his head. Jesus' suffering had to come before his glory. And if you would be Jesus' disciple, you must share his suffering before you ever share his glory. As Romans 8 says, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Dear people, the appeal of modern Christianity, that it will make you happy and affluent and trouble-free, it's a big lie. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. Jesus simply calls us to himself to share his glory only after his suffering. To follow him is to embark on a life in which he is our only security, our only comfort, our only place of rest, refuge, our only rest, our homes and our leisure and our middle class status and our comfort and our rights as Americans. Those are not guaranteed to the disciples of Jesus. It's past time we count the cost of being his disciple. For we will share Jesus' glory or suffering before we share his glory. Or as Rich Mullins put it so poignantly in his song, you'll meet the Lord in the furnace long time before you meet him in the air. And if you think that this talk of suffering of the cross and humiliation offends you, if you prefer a more sophisticated religion that speaks of the glory of human achievement and, and the power of love and beauty, I must warn you, that's a different gospel. There's no salvation there. For the kingdom of the Son of Man is characterized by the cross. By his suffering, he brings us to glory. And if we would know his glory, we must first share his suffering. That's the first lesson. Then in verse 21, another disciple approached Jesus with a different perspective. He said, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Here we learn a second truth about following Jesus. Jesus claims first place in everything. Jesus claims first place. In everything. Jesus' answer to this second question is much more difficult than his answer to the first man. To understand what Jesus is saying, we need to grasp the difference that Jesus sees between his disciples and everyone else. The difference is not a difference of philosophy, although it is that too. The difference is not a difference in ethics, though it is that too. The difference is not a difference in belief, though it is that too. The difference is not a difference in religion, though it is that as well. But the difference, the radical difference between the disciples of Christ Jesus and everyone else is the difference between those who have new life in Christ and those who are still dead in their natural sinful state. 
That's the difference between life and death. This is not some isolated idea. The Bible repeatedly makes this distinction. In John 5, Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And in Ephesians 2, we read the same kind of thing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in sin. Now, that is a radical distinction. That means everything will be different for those who are alive in Christ versus the ones who are still dead in sin. The one alive will have different priorities and different values and different goals and different plans. Things having to do with his new life in Christ rather than the old natural life of sinners in a sinful world. And that difference is the point of Jesus' statement here. As I reflected on these verses, the genius of Jesus' teaching uh, dawned on me. The man says, let me go bury my father first. The funeral of one's father is a perfect example of life in the world without Christ. Funerals are so urgent. They demand we drop everything. The social pressure, the social responsibilities are enormous. But funerals are losing operations. The only important thing at the funeral, the life of the deceased, is already lost. Funerals really accomplish nothing for the one they honor. They are, at least in regard to him, much ado about nothing. And life in this world is like that. Everything is urgent. Everything must be done yesterday. Everything, everyone expects all kinds of things from you. And you're irresponsible if you don't meet all those obligations. But without Christ, it's all much ado about nothing. Jesus calls us from a life of great urgency about dead things to a life of concern for the living things Christ is doing in this world. So Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead and you follow me. Jesus is not saying there's something wrong with the funeral. It's just that it's always something, always some urgent distraction which demands our attention first. But Jesus says, anyone can take care of those things. If you're alive in Christ, you have more important things to do. Specifically, Jesus is talking about those he calls to proclaim the gospel. Surely they could be engineers or doctors or lawyers or businessmen. But so could lots of other people. If God has given you new life in Christ and called you to proclaim the gospel, that work takes precedence over everything else. Jesus claims first place. So let the spiritually dead bury the dead. Let those without life in Christ do all those wonderful and necessary things. You follow Christ. This does not mean that every other career other than gospel ministry is wrong. This call to follow Christ applies to every, every believer. So if God gives you a different career path, 
then you need to be like Paul. Paul was a tent maker. It's an honorable job. But his life was not about tents. His life was about serving Christ. And yours must be too. You cannot be driven by the urgency of the world and follow Christ faithfully. Let the spiritually dead play that game. You are called to follow Christ wherever he puts you. His work takes precedence over everything else. Jesus always claims first place. Like these would-be disciples, we may hastily commit to follow Christ, thinking it would be a means of great gain. But this morning, Jesus calls us to count the cost. For he says we must share his suffering before we'll ever share his glory. And at other times when called by Christ, we begin to make excuses, finding so many other things that are urgent and demanding. But Jesus reminds us that his call is not optional. It's a difference between being alive in him and still being dead in our sins. If you're alive in Christ, then understand that his call takes precedence over everything else. So let the dead bury their dead. You follow Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your words are brief. And yet they're powerful for we are so inclined to see glory, but to have an aversion to suffering with you. And we're so inclined to find a million things that are so urgent that they have to be done first before we can follow you. We need to hear, Lord, the urgency of your life in us. Learn to apply that in how we live it out. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray, that we would be faithful servants of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. We normally recite the Apostles' Creed as we come to the Lord's Supper, but let me just uh, comment uh, or take us to one part of it. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks us about what it means when it says Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. What does that suffering mean? Let's read the answer here together. It's in your bulletin. That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. He did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might deliver us, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. We reflect on Jesus' suffering. We come to the sacrament where we have set before us these symbols of Christ's body and blood uh, sacrificed for us, shed on the cross for us. When we think about his suffering and his glory, we must think about 